I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books. Joining us today is Christian Coates Ulrichsen of the Baker Institute of Rice University and author of the new book, Qatar and the Gulf Crisis, uh, published by Hearst and by Oxford in the United States. Uh, Christian, uh, thanks for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about the book. Um, what, what motivated you to write Qatar and the Gulf Crisis and what do you think the major contribution is going to be? Well, since the Gulf blockade began in June 2017, and we're now speaking in 2020, it's approaching its third anniversary. I was, as everyone else, taken largely by surprise in 2017, although it was very clear the crisis had a longer backstory. There was a similar, although lesser severe, episode in 2014 and other instances of tension going back 20, 20 years plus. But I wanted to take a deeper look at the issues as to why the crisis had erupted it also had begun in the first six months of the Trump administration. And as we've seen in the Russia investigation and other episodes in D.C., a lot of what happened at the first few months of the administration seemed to be really having effects that were taking a lot longer to dissipate and were having a lot of um, sort of difficulty in rewinding some of those uh, issues. So I want to look at that. And I wanted also to look at how Qatar had responded, because the initial assumption, especially from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, was that Qatar would fold. They would get their way. There would be a power play, even though it was never clear what exactly they wanted from it. But the Qataris were able to respond very quickly and to rapidly reconfigure a lot of their economic and trading arrangements and also to defeat the crisis politically. And when Donald Trump, for example, tweeted in support of the crisis on the second day in June 2017, such an outcome was very far from being predicted. And so I wanted to look at how they got from A to B, how the Qataris and the U.S. found themselves in a very different position uh, as the crisis went on, and how the Saudis and Emiratis realized gradually that their hopes for a, a power play were not, um, not successful. Well, great. So why don't we start um, kind of back at the beginning then? Um, you know, what, what are like the deeper back issues which, um, which motivated uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE to, uh, to, to push towards this uh, confrontation with Qatar? Well, there had been a long history of tension between Saudi and Qatar, partly because the Qataris in the 1990s almost began to develop a more autonomous regional and foreign policy, in part to escape from the Saudi shadow. The lesson from Kuwait in 1990 also being that smaller states in the Gulf are vulnerable to larger and conventionally more powerful neighbors, although the UAE was also doing this at the same time. And uh, the Saudis and Emiratis kind of latched on to the uh, power shift in 1995 when uh, Emir Hamad uh, took power and his father uh, went into exile in the UAE after being ousted from Doha, and the Emiratis and Saudis and the Bahrainis and the Egyptians as well, the four states that came together in 2017, also came together in 1996 to try and reinstate the father. And that led to a whole series of frustrations between Saudi and Qatar, later on between the UAE and Qatar. Saudi with Jewish ambassador from 2002 until 2007, in frustration at Al Jazeera's coverage of various regional developments, and after 2011, especially with the Arab Spring, when 
Saudi and the UAE, led by Abu Dhabi, really felt threatened by the uh, transformational change that at least at the beginning seemed to be running across the region and the rise of Islamist groups as, in some cases, the beneficiaries of that change. Uh, that really sharpened the clause, especially as Doha, in their view, seemed to be more relaxed about the, uh, the pace and direction of change. So we've seen a, a long backstory, partly because also the Gulf states, you have the Saudis being one very large state surrounded by five smaller states, so there's a core periphery imbalance as well. And for the UAE, for Abu Dhabi, there was, seems to be a personal dislike from Mohammed bin Zayed, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, who has seemed to have a personal issue with Qatar, with Sheikh Hamad, the Prime Minister, Hamad bin Jassim and Sheikh Emir Hamad bin Khalifa, the Emir until 2013. And so almost as soon as there was another change in power in Doha in 2013, when Emir Hamad uh, passed power to his son, Sheikh Tamim, the current leader of Qatar, there was an, almost an immediate power play in within months to try and take advantage, I think, of a young new ruler trying to consolidate his position. That lasted for most of 2014. Uh, and one just gets a sense, the speed with which the Saudis and Emiratis embraced uh, the incoming Trump administration, late 2016, early 2017, one gets the impression that the Saudis and Emiratis were intending to take advantage of this set of circumstances where you had now a configuration of power in Washington, D.C. that they thought would be favorable to them. It didn't seem to have a plan for any real foreign policy interest and that might accept a, a new power play against Qatar as though they were fait accompli or to shape the narrative as something that would be welcomed. But I think that also explains a lot of the timing within the first six months of the new administration, which of course made its first foreign mm -hmm. uh, its, the president made its first foreign visit to Saudi Arabia in May 2017, just two weeks before the uh, the blockade began. So one of the things which is interesting in all of this is that uh, the Trump administration clearly had as its top priority uh, to build a united front against uh, Iran and uh, to try and unify uh, the GCC with Israel, uh, create this new strategic alliance. And yet it seemed that uh, having Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, launch this blockade against Qatar, this seems to go directly against uh, the Trump administration's top strategic priority. How do you explain that uh, disjuncture? Well, it did, and the hack of the Qatar news agency that really precipitated the two-week um, echo chamber of uh, information and propaganda and kind of really uh, sort of two-week campaign of uh, a media onslaught on Qatar, which was precipitated the blockade, that hack began. A hack actually took place two days after the, uh, the Riyadh summit at which uh, President Trump uh, called upon all Sunni Arab states effectively to unify with the U.S. against Iran, to contain Iran. And within two days, the Sunni Arab world, especially among U.S. close partners in the Gulf, actually turned in on itself, turned on each other. And so from a U.S. perspective, this, I think, has been uh, seen as something very unfavorable. And I think as time has passed, the White House and the president himself have, have come to see that as a great uh, hindrance in their efforts to to contain Iran, and especially as the Trump administration has had its maximum pressure campaign ramp up. The Saudis and Emiratis, I believe, felt that with Trump visiting Riyadh, and with all the effort they had put in, both directly and through 
various proxies they were using in, to try and influence in terms of debate, I think there was a feeling in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi that uh, Trump's visit would be the uh, sort of groundwork for persuading the president and the people around him that uh, there was a sort of good side and a bad side in the Middle East and in the Gulf. And the good side were the countries like UAE and Saudi Arabia taking seriously, in their view, the threat of radicalized Islamism, how they saw it. And they were trying to portray Qatar as being on the other side. And they felt that this uh, campaign of influence would pay off. And of course, it initially did on the 6th of June, the day after the blockade, when President Trump tweeted in apparent support and seemed to link back a reference to conversations to he'd had in, in Riyadh at the summit. So from an Emirati-Saudi point of view, initially it seemed to be going to plan. What I think they miscalculated was the fact that the White House is not the U.S. government and uh, uh, no one individual can shift an entire set of bureaucratic institutions and interests. And of course, uh, Qatar is home to the forward headquarters of, of, of Central Command, of CENTCOM. And there's a very close and long U.S. economic and strategic relationship as well. And so immediately you saw the Secretaries of State and Defense, uh, Tillerson and Mattis, really try to make sure that they could at least rebalance uh, President Trump's uh, initial comments to, to make sure no action was taken that might be, um, might be, well, just kind of hasty and rash. So one of the really interesting things about the book is how you trace through the different ways in which uh, Qatar uh, adapted to the blockade and the boycott and uh, and tracing exactly how they were able to be so resilient. Um, walk us through that a little bit. How did how did they respond to this sudden uh, new situation? Well, to some extent, the fact that in 2014, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE, the three countries which together with Egypt would come together in 2017, but the fact that in 2014, there had been a nine-month standoff when which didn't escalate to a blockade. You just had the withdrawal of their ambassadors from Doha. But the fact that there was a nine-month standoff did actually get people thinking, well, if this happened now, it could happen again, potentially. So at least you began to see some uh, contingency planning being drawn up. The, also, the other big thing which really enabled Qatar to beat the blockade was the fact that they were building a, a large new port in, in, in Qatar which opened in stages between late 2016 and late 2017. And that new deepwater port allowed Qatar for the first time to receive large ocean-going cargo ships, which meant that they could actually bypass, um, especially Jebel Ali in Dubai. And in 2014, for example, a lot of the incoming cargo coming by ship would first call at Jebel Ali in Dubai to be offloaded and then loaded onto smaller ships, which would take it to Qatar. So the fact that they could bypass Jebel Ali in 2017 because of the large new Hamad port that opened in December 2016 meant they had a lifeline because had there been a blockade where not only was the land border, Qatar's only land border shut, but also effectively your lifeline to uh, cargo ships and trade as well, it would have been very difficult. So the combination of planning, forward planning, contingency planning, and the fact that investment in infrastructure is now ready really allowed the Qataris to, to move fast. And then that two-week period between the hack of the news agency and the actual blockade, even though I don't think anyone really knew what was going to happen, there was clearly something afoot. 
And that again allowed the authorities in Doha to begin to think about where do we get our imports from? What are the replacements? What might we have to do to put rapid alternative arrangements, shipping arrangements, uh, procurement arrangements in place? And those swung into action within days. And so within three days of the blockade, the first shipments of uh, essential foods were being flown in within two or three weeks. You had other shipping routes uh, opening up. Now, how important was the uh, the contribution of Turkey and Iran in, in this adaptation strategy? Well, I think it was very important in allowing Qatar access to alternatives and to allow the restructuring of some of those routes. For, for Turkey, for example, the Turks had had an issue of their own just less than a year before 2017, in July 2016, when there was the coup attempt against uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And the Qataris were one of the very first countries to uh, offer their support to Erdogan. And a lot of Turkish media were fingering elements in Saudi Arabian UAE media as being supportive of the coup attempt. So when this happened in 2017, from a Turkish perspective, it looked like a continuation of the, the events of July 2016, an attempt to try and sort of remove regimes in the Middle East that the Saudis and Emiratis didn't seem to approve of. So there was instant response, and there was also the fact that the Turkish parliament met in special session on the second day of the blockade to ratify two military agreements with Qatar. It was also symbolic because I think it made very clear, even though the actual numbers of Turkish troops stationed in Doha were very small, it made it clear to the Saudis and Emiratis that if they were to try anything, the Turks would be standing squarely with Qatar. And this is a time when Qatar's natural external guarantor of security and external sort of partner. The U.S. was suddenly in, thrown into play by, by President Trump's comments. So the Turkish stance was important at the very beginning and has continued to be so ever since. That relationship has deepened on a strategic and economic and commercial level as well as political. And Iran, again, Qatar had downgraded relations with Iran as other GCC states had in 2015, but they were upgraded again in 2017. An ironic uh, byproduct of the blockade has been the closure of Saudi Emirati airspace and Bahraini airspace, which meant Iran became a vital conduit for flights in and out of Qatar. And that Iran was also a, a part of the uh, land route for, for shipping, for, for, for goods eventually being shipped across the Gulf to Qatar as well. So, again, those relations improved politically and economically out of necessity. And again, goes against the U.S. and the Trump administration's hope that they would have a unified kind of front against Iran. And I think that's why also there was gradual increase in resentment in the U.S. that the blockade was continuing for so long because they could see it wasn't um, consistent with what they were trying to do on a region-wide basis. Why do you think the Saudis and Emiratis miscalculated so badly? Um, why, why were they unable to anticipate um, this adaptation if uh, Qatar had clearly been preparing for so long? It's a strange one to answer, especially given that the UAE especially has a very sophisticated knowledge of how Washington operates. And the idea that suddenly you can invest all your hopes in one man, the president of the US, and that the whole government would shift with him uh, again, hasn't been borne up by experience, but it's a mystery as to why they may have thought that could have happened, except to say that the Trump administration came into office loudly proclaiming that it was going to do things its way, 
and our institutions didn't seem to matter anymore. If you recall the, the way, for example, the travel ban was um, unleashed in the first week of the administration, the sort of some of the sites of senior Trump administration officials berating the media and berating officials and acting as if they were the new people in town. This is a completely new game that they were now in charge. It, it could only be that um, possible that uh, officials in Abu Dhabi and in Riyadh took that to heart and thought, yes, this is an entirely different game. This is totally new uh, set of um, era that we're in. And it's now or never. We have a, one, a once in a lifetime chance, perhaps, in our view, to try and put Qatar into, a, into its place and kind of do what we tried to do in 2014 and couldn't, probably, because they knew in 2014 that the Obama administration would not, um, would not support any such move. And in fact, in January 2018, Ben Rhodes, who was on Obama's National Security Council, actually said that a number of things we've seen over the past year uh, are things we tried to stop from happening. And he actually mentioned the Qatar blockade as one example. So it's almost as if there, were, there was a feeling that there was an opportunity and that they had to go for it. And the Trump administration itself was under the impression that institutions no longer mattered in the same way they had in the past. And we see that in many other aspects of its policymaking as well. That first few months of the administration, when they kind of seemed to act as if they could do whatever they wanted, regardless of, of institutional norms and um, sort of institutional um, kind of constraints on, on power, is coming back in so many ways to, to sort of to, to bite in, to bite all concerns. Now, one thing which um, you, you talk about in the book and which I think uh, anyone who works on the subject has, has lived through is just the intense nature of the information warfare surrounding, uh, surrounding the crisis and especially on social media. Um, talk a little bit about that and uh, how, you know, the unique ways in which that has shaped the politics of the crisis. Well, yes, I think the, the way the blockade was preceded by a two-week media campaign and social media campaign set the tone from the start that this was a, as much a war of, of narrative, sort of information and disinformation. Of course, it began with a hack and the implantation of a, a sort of fake news story. And again, going back to Washington, going back to the times we were living through and continue to live in, uh, you know, Kellyanne Conway, for example, had talked about alternative facts on the very first weekend of the administration. And so you could argue this is the first um, international crisis of the alternative facts era. And the, the shaping of information, the shaping of narratives, especially in a Washington that was now populated by an administration that so few had seen coming and seemed to have so few established uh, figures in it meant, I think, that there was a, a real opportunity for someone or a group of actors who could try and convince people that something was true, even if it were, were not. And again, the whole fake news uh, um, environment that was so enthusiastically proclaimed even by administration officials, including the president who talks about fake news almost every day. And so this was very much seizing the moment, as it were, and trying to pump information or misinformation into that sort of echo chamber in the hope that it would then shape the realities that were emerging. And so we saw from the beginning, we saw conferences being held in Washington, two in 2017, one on the day of the hack. We saw conference being held in London. We've seen a social media onslaught against uh, people who were trying to have a counter-narrative. 
it's very much trying to dominate the news and the views. And of course, we've we've seen often escalate into quite unpleasant uh, confrontations as well. But it's been really a part and parcel of this attempt to, well, at least an identification of the fact that we're now living in an environment where facts don't seem to, well, the, the facts seem to be into, open to interpretation in a way they never used to be. And this is, again, maybe the international manifestation of that. Now, we spend a lot of time talking about uh, the United States and, um, and American interests and all of this. But what about, uh, what about China and, uh, and Asia, where the energy interests uh, loom very large? Um, how do they respond to uh, this division in the GCC and the possible disruption of, um, of the extremely important energy relationships they've built? Well, the other many, many of the other partners in the Gulf of the Gulf states internationally have tried not to take sides, including, of course, the European Union as well as China, as well as Russia, as well as India, South Korea, and Japan, and others, and have tried to balance their relationships with both sides in the same way that they also try and balance, for example, a relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran. This is just another example of the balancing they have to now take into account. And so we haven't necessarily seen any aspects of those relationships changing. Uh, I think it was probably a, a hope from the blockading states in 2017 that the blockade would get international support. And this was one of, its, one of the manifestations of its failure that almost no international partners signed on to it. Uh, several other regional states in the Middle East and parts of Africa initially downgraded ties with Qatar. but most of them since uh, we resumed. But from an international point of view, there was almost no support. There was virtually no support for the blockade at all. So it's just another aspect of, uh, firstly, the blockade's failure to convince the world that the attempt was a good idea. And secondly, that um, it's just another way that international partners have to balancing in terms of regional relationships. So... Just to, you know, kind of one last question then, uh, when, when, when you look at the trajectory of this conflict, um, you know, is the, is the Gulf Cooperation Council finished as a functioning international organization, or do you see any prospect for it to somehow come back together? Well, the GCC has been largely absent at every stage of the crisis. It was not used initially to formulate grievances against Qatar, or to then mediate. And the GCC does have a, an arbitration arm. It's supposed to have a conflict, you know, sort of a mediation uh, section within it. Uh, the challenge for the GCC has always been to assert its relevance among the six member states and the fact that they were unable to prevent three of its member states from turning on a fourth for the second time in just over three years has, I think, done it great, done it great damage. The, the fact that it survived is, I think, partly because for the first two years of the crisis, it was chaired first by Kuwait, then by Oman, the two states that haven't been pulled into taking sides. The, we've seen summits taking place. I think we've, we've seen the end of the GCC as a closer, politically cohesive um, organization. We see the technocratic work continuing, the meetings of various ministers from other from different fields. Although even in, in this case, in February 2020, as the coronavirus uh, was becoming a, a more of an international concern, we saw the Qatari health minister reportedly being denied entry to Saudi Arabia for a meeting of health ministers. 
So it seems that the crisis is continuing and that even the continuation of the technocratic committees of the GCC, which at least had meant that the work of the GCC was continuing at one level, may also now be threatened as well. Although the fact that since February the GCC has been headed now by Kuwaiti uh, at least gives hope that, uh, that you know, there is at least a future, it will at least continue, it won't just disappear, it may fade and become more irrelevant, especially as individual Gulf states have responded to the COVID-19 crisis with, the, with very much national measures, not regional ones. So it's definitely facing a, facing a crisis of its, um, of its, to some extent, of its own making because of its lack of action until now. Well, great. Well, thank you. We've been speaking with uh, Christian Coates Ulrichsen, author of the new book, uh, Qatar and the Gulf Crisis, uh, published by Hearst and by Oxford. Uh, Christian, thank you for joining us. Thank you.